A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Frankenoak.com, the fastest growing menswear brand in North America that is now launching its first ever women's collection. Go to Frankenoak.com slash women, where you can sign up for an exclusive pre-sale before the new women's collection goes live on September 20th. Go to Frankenoak.com slash women to learn more. We are not the country we think we are. Canada is not Canada. Gord Downey said that, uh, and he's right, we cannot square our conception of ourselves as a nice country, a civilized country, a progressive country with the way that we have treated indigenous people and with the way that we treat indigenous people right now. To have communities that don't have drinkable water, communities with 70% plus unemployment rates, communities with double-digit youth suicide rates, communities where people make less money than anywhere else, but where food costs more than everywhere else, communities that by every measurable statistic are comparable to the most destitute failed states in the world, a full-on human rights crisis in the words of the United Nations, you just can't be a country that has dozens of places like that And also consider yourself a decent, modern nation. It is incoherent. So no, we are not the country we think we are. And we seem to be finally getting that. But that's kind of all about us. About settler Canada. We always make it about us. It's about Gord Downey. It's about Justin Trudeau. It's about Leo DiCaprio in The Revenant. What about Native people themselves? Maybe we've woken up to something. We have decided to apologize. We have decided to reconcile. But what about them? And what about how we portray them? 
how we represent them in the news, in movies, on the internet. Is there anything new there? Earlier this year, we did an Indigenous media roundtable about how Native people are representing themselves, how they're covering themselves in their own journalism. But today we're going to talk about how we represent Indigenous people in settler media and why it matters. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Paul Merriam, Donna Gauguin, Jackie Brabazon, Gwendolyn Joy, Simon Liam, Ron Sanders, Tyree Parkin, and Jim Harley. Jim, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I support Canada Land for its critical take on media, culture, and current affairs. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is also brought to you by frankenoak.com. I announced on the last episode that frankenoak.com is now moving out of just doing menswear and is launching its first ever women's collection. And it was announced elsewhere. And there was so much interest and excitement about that that their site went down. Find out what all the fuss is about. People love Frank and Oak's clothes. I wear them. And now women can wear them too. And the experience of shopping for Frank and Oak's clothes online is very, very good. It's a great way to buy clothes. Have a look at these clothes. On September 20th, you can buy them. But right now you can check them out. And for listeners of this podcast, you can sign up for an exclusive pre-sale. The website to go to is frankandoak.com slash women. Quantities are limited. Check it out now. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, the original sponsor of Canada Land, a proud Canadian company that makes it incredibly easy, painless, stupid, silly easy to send invoices and do about a hundred other things that are essential if you are running your own business or freelance practice. 
FreshBooks will save you hours and hours of time every week, time that you can put towards the thing that you actually do. FreshBooks will make you and your business look better. FreshBooks will help you get paid quicker. You need to have some tools up your sleeve if you're going to hack it in the hustle. If you are part of this new freelance economy or entrepreneurial economy, FreshBooks is empowering you. Check it out. Five million people and businesses around the world use this thing. FreshBooks.com, 30-day free trial. When you do become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you. You will be doing the show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. My name is Hayden King. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Public Policy at Carleton University. And I'm Anishinaabe from Beausoleil First Nation in Chimnasing. My name is Vicki Lane. I am a filmmaker. I directed a feature documentary called After the Last River uh, about the complex relationship between Attawapiskat, De Beers, and various levels of government. And over the last eight years, I've also worked... Um, doing research for governments in Nunavut and the Northwest Territories on building their creative industries. So film, media, arts, TV. Thank you both for being here. Happy to be here. This recent article that Neil McDonald wrote on cbc.ca, uh, I want to read you a quote from it. He wrote, the audience isn't really very interested in reading about Indigenous issues. What do you make of that? Is he right? There's, there's certainly a lot of racism in Canada and Canadians are apathetic and Canadians don't care and they read about these stories and they're like, oh, whatever, it glazes over and, they, and you know, they don't want to hear about it. But Native people are more and more engaged and I think that they're consuming more and more mainstream and independent media. And I think Neil has a particular perspective. He works for a particular organization. Maybe his articles just aren't that good. There's, there's a level of truth in what he's saying. Certainly, they're honest reflections, but uh, I'm not necessarily sure they're reflective of, of reality. Vicky, uh, you have a documentary that you've been taking out in search of audiences, so you would know firsthand whether, at least with in terms of the story that you were telling, whether audiences are interested. Mm-hmm. So my first trip to Attawapiskat was in 2008, and when I was doing a lot of the filming over 90 days in 2010 and 2011, community members would tell me, like, if only Canadians knew, things would be different. CBC, I, I remember reading an article, they weren't really going to send a reporter up. They're like, uh-huh, another housing crisis, like, Attawapiskat's far, it's expensive. And then the comment section just exploded and Charlie Angus's YouTube video was getting so much play. They're like, oh, this actually is a story. So it was the audience's appetite that ended up pushing through commenting, through sharing, that ended up sending more journalists up there. 20% of the stories that year on Indigenous issues were about the Attawapiskat housing crisis. So it definitely was kind of this flashpoint and a lot of journalists were reporting on it. And Attawapiskat still comes into the news with quite regularity and people share it and it captures attention for a time. With the last one with the suicide crisis, there was international, the Reuters from New York was flying in. So there's certainly even an international appetite that's changed from when I started. I noticed a huge difference, but there's definitely lulls and there's over a hundred other communities that are as remote as Attawapiskat, but they don't get nearly the same coverage. Hayden, I want to return to something you were saying. The last time that we talked about these issues on the show, I, I had with me a wonderful panel of all Indigenous journalists, and we were really focused on the stories that Indigenous communities are telling and the news reporting that Indigenous people are producing with largely their own communities in mind. Before we kind of get further into this, our conversation today is a little bit different. It, it, it is about whether or not everybody else cares, is paying attention, and whether or not that matters. 
Neil McDonald's headline was, Why Clicking on This Story About Indigenous People Matters. In contradiction to some of my guests last time around, McDonald is saying it does matter whether or not the rest of Canada cares about this and pays attention to these stories. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, of course it matters. As I said before, there's a tremendous amount of racism and apathy uh, still saturating Canadian society. And the only way that we're going to break that down is through education. And the media has a significant role to play in uh, breaking down those stereotypes and racism. And But there's this transition uh, that the media is right in right now where they're moving away from poor reporting that reinforces stereotypes that misrepresent communities that mischaracterize perspectives uh, or in some cases is downright racist itself towards something that's a little bit more progressive and a, a bit more honest and allowing native people to speak for themselves I mean there's a shift that's happening and uh, and Neil I think is uh, maybe somewhere he, he, he maybe he's just not part of that shift. Uh, now, I will say, in the sense that he says it's important for Canadians to click on these stories, I agree with him. If Canadians aren't reading and learning, then, you know, reporters can ask all the questions. They can have all the Native people they want uh, in their stories and interviews. But if, if Canadians are disengaging, then we're not doing the job of breaking down the racism that contributes to all of the socioeconomic challenges that we have in Canada. I mean, for McDonald's purposes, he see, he, he kind of puts this forth in just kind of meat and potatoes, tangible terms. If people care... Uh, and the public cares, then the police will prioritize cases that they believe are of the most interest to the public. So with reference to missing and murdered Indigenous women, he's saying that the, the cop's indifference uh, is absolutely a reflection of society's indifference. And in that way, police are exercising their own news judgment. I have to note there that, again, we are valuing our own awareness and to all these issues, well, we need to raise awareness and more people need to be aware. More people have to have the, have the conversation. And when we're talking about settler Canada, we place such a high value on whether we are paying attention. What's the traffic? Hayden, why do we never seem to care as much when it is indigenous people telling their own stories? Well, I, I think that I, I agree with you at one level that Canadians are more drawn to somebody like Gord Downey. But to answer the question about why Canadians are drawn, why, you know, white, middle-class, uh, privileged Canadians are drawn to other white, privileged, middle-class Canadians. Um, I don't know. Isn't that, is, it, is, that, is that obvious? Or, <laughs> sort of answers itself. Um, yeah. So, like, Native people are still, I, I think there's still a lot of stereotypes about Native people. They're scary. Uh, you know, nobody wants to hear an angry Indian when the message is packaged in uh tones and nuances in a way that those white Canadians can understand it better or consume it better, I think that they're they're more apt to uh, to listen and to pay attention. And allies are important. And people like Gordowney, you know, it's great. Some of the best reporters are non-Native people on Native issues, you know, in some cases. People like Jody Porter. Uh, you know, speaking from film and television, the business side of it is is really quite complicated. Like you have someone like Zacharias Canuck, he, his film, The Fast Runners, the number one Canadian movie of all time. His company three years ago had filed for bankruptcy. There yeah. isn't like the resources when you go up to the north, when people want to stay in their communities and work in their communities, they don't have production accountants or entertainment lawyers. You have to go down to Toronto or Montreal. So once you reach a certain level, you don't have the infrastructure supporting it. So governments are working to do that, to build artists. But it's it's certainly there are structural issues and a lack of programming to support them. 
I'm glad you bring up uh, feature film, like scripted film, because I want our conversation to encompass representations across media. It's interesting that we are always talking about this as a problem to be solved by various uh, programs and what kind of assistance. And then you get like, well, there's Hollywood, you know, and, and Hollywood came to Canada and they did a huge Oscar bait movie, The Revenant, and they filmed it in Canada. And yet it's still like it, it, you have to have Leonardo DiCaprio in there. Mm-hmm. And they, I think, were respectful in many ways and uh, had consultation from and, and were wanted to be historically accurate. And and I, and yet it received criticism from Jesse Wente and others that really it's the same. It's Dances with Wolves all over again. I'm unsure. I, I still haven't even decided where I fall on The Revenant, but it definitely follows a trend in more recent movies on Indigenous issues where it's the it's the white savior storyteller, right? So the Native people are doomed. They're dying. They're going extinct. You know, this is Dances with Wolves. This is A Man Called Horace. This is, you know, to uh, 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 on some level, this is Tonto with Johnny Depp. This is where uh, white people, white men come. Although I guess Tonto doesn't apply because Johnny Depp is a white man playing an Indian, which is, that's a completely different trope, which also has very deep roots and a long history. But so Leonardo DiCaprio is, it's really the perfect settler colonial fantasy. You know, here's a white guy, he comes to the Americas and he's a better Indian than the Indians themselves. In that film, the, the white man can't save them and, and the Indians go extinct and they're just no more Indians because... You know that's the preference, right? That's the that's the preference that there there are just Indians are invisible. There's just no more Indians, and so just like the media, film continues to to uh, struggle. Mainstream film, anyway, because uh, Vicky mentioned Zacharias Kunick and uh, Alani Sobamswan and these brilliant filmmakers who are making heartbreaking, beautiful, uh, important films, more important than any other filmmaker in Canada. It's interesting, uh, Vicky, that earlier you brought up how the comment section on the Ottawa Piscot stories really drove public interest and turned this into a political touchpoint. Of course, those comment sections are now closed on the CBC's website because of the virulent racism that would break out any time Indigenous issues were discussed. At the time, the CBC said this was a temporary measure. That was nine months ago. First of all, the comments that came out during the housing crisis were horrifying. I think everybody that was involved, Charlie Angus, at people from the community, no one expected how dark that was going to get. People feel guilty. There's a lot of guilt. There's something about taking like collective responsibility for what has happened. And in order to take that responsibility, you have to have the ability to respond and to have a conversation. And I think because we've been so segregated, uh, really, uh, especially in Ontario, um, there is such a fear of speaking and talking. And I think average Canadians do want to have that ability to talk. And uh, what's unfortunate about message boards is that there's an anonymity where people can say whatever they want and there's no proper dialogue or discussion. Um, so the comment section, I, I don't know if it's worth opening up, but that exchange and dialogue is so important because we've been so segregated because a lot of, you know, well-meaning white people want to know more. They know that they're totally ignorant. They're afraid to say the wrong thing, so they don't say anything at all. And that is also a problem. How do you instill a sense of collective responsibility? And, and I mean, you are talking about like people don't want to feel guilty. They don't want to feel responsible, especially if they themselves came from different circumstances, different parts of the world. Uh, I feel like it's just such a difficult thing to get any kind of a national consensus on, even to the extent where we can't even agree that, that, that the racism exists. Hayden, do you, do you support the shutting down of those comment sections or do you feel that there was some, some value in, in what was going on there? 
if you're a native person reading a story and you scroll down to the comments, you know, it's hurtful stuff. These are people that are afraid. They're generally white people who are afraid that native people, racialized people are becoming more of a presence, have how their perspective is is broadcast more in the media and they're afraid of losing their privilege and they get really angry about it. And then there are people that are just uninformed and uneducated. Comments are useful um, for us to to uh, try to untangle the uh, the opinions of Canadians. I wonder if there isn't some of the most exciting and kind of encouraging things I see are Indigenous people themselves who are kind of uh, breaking a lot of these tropes and stereotypes in, in just being themselves. Uh, if you're talking about a Tanya Tagak, or if you're talking about Jesse Wente as a cultural critic, as a as a as a film and video game geek, as a guy who you know, uh, but who also integrates, is coming from a perspective as an Indigenous person. Uh, if we talk about you, Hayden, if we talk about Wab Canoe as as an elected representative, or be, prior to that as a rapper, uh, I feel like like a, a more kind of dynamic and contemporary uh, understanding through these individuals is actually incredibly potent, more potent uh, in, in transforming representation itself in the way that we're engaging. I Yeah, I agree completely with you. And I, I think it's important that we hear more of those voices. And, you know, I think that it's taken a long time for uh, people to to break in to the Canadian consciousness. And uh, and they, they deserve a lot of credit. You know, Native people weren't allowed to leave the reserve until 1951, okay? So it's We've had two, two, three generations of Native people coming into cities, uh, going to schools, um, uh, becoming writers in the media, producing films uh, uh, in, in mainstream Canada. So I think in the short period of time that uh, Native people have been allowed to do this, I think that we've seen a, a tremendous amount of, of uh, progress in those people, those individuals breaking down a lot of the stereotypes and a lot of the racism that saturates Canada. And, and as I said before, I mean, all of this change that we see, the shift that we're in, that I think that we're in, is, is again, driven by Native people. And, uh, and Canadians can choose to listen and choose to watch uh, and choose to respond, or they can get left behind because uh, society is changing. And I think that's an important, important thing to consider. Well, people are also talking about Tribe Called Red and their new video and their new album, and they're not talking about it as like an indigenous rap group, you know, like they, they in a lot of ways that with their their new work is crossing into a lot of mainstream music. And so is Tanya Tagak. So I think, you know, that they're at least in, in sort of what I've observed, they're not being tokenized as indigenous artists. They're artists in their own right. And um, I think people are are viewing them that way. And that's um, that's great. That is I, I would be optimistic as well i guess i'd say <laughs> I'm, I'm eternally optimistic in native people I, I i think if you i see this as a trend i don't i don't believe that we've hit a turning point i don't believe that uh this is everything is wonderful and we've 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 hit peak reconciliation this has been a struggle to to break into canadians the consciousness collective consciousness of canadians but we've seen uh all of the people that we've mentioned already the people whose shoulders they have stood on uh, this is a trend and it's increasing. So we're going to continue to see Native people uh, uh, break into the mainstream 
Canadian media and independent indigenous media is going to continue to grow as well. Um, and then and that's not going to stop. And so it's up to Canadians to choose or not to choose to listen. But I think the Neil McDonald's of the world, and, and again, I, res- I respect that he wrote this piece in an honest way. And I think that he's telling some truths about uh, uh, newsrooms. But that kind of perspective is an old perspective, and if you and if and if continue to if people continue to ignore indigenous perspectives, they're going to get left behind. Their audiences are going to shrink, and um, and and they're not going to be able to adapt because native people aren't going to stop. I mean, you're talking to uh, an audience of this podcast that has a lot of journalists listening. Uh, you're talking to me and Vicky, and Vicky has, has uh, a, a, a journalist and filmmaker who has uh, concerned herself with with telling these stories. I am. Uh, uh, putting out content where, yes, I'm concerned about what is important and I'm concerned about the larger, uh, the larger ambitions here. And, uh, but really on a day-to-day basis, I'm looking for good stories that people are going to connect with. What do you have to say to members of the media, people who are in this sometimes uncomfortable intermediary role of story selection, who to have on, what stories to tell, and, you know, uh, facing all, all sorts of um, uh, disincentives of what if I step on this the wrong way and get called a racist or if I misrepresent this, uh, is it wor- but if it's worse if I just ignore. Uh, wh- what do you want to say to an audience of people who are going to be making a lot of decisions about how to represent Indigenous people? I think that uh, representing Indigenous people accurately means including Indigenous people, right? So what we're doing now, having this conversation, having me on, uh, you know, hiring hiring the Indigenous journalists that are out there is important. You got to include those voices, include those perspectives. They're going to understand what's happening in commun- the communities that they they cover, um, and Native editors who are all but absent in the media landscape, you know. Uh, they need to be a part of the, the broader discussion to change representation issues. But in terms of the question of, about the fear, you know, am I going to get it wrong? Am I going to misrepresent? Am I going to mischaracterize? I mean, that's going to exist, but it's better to do that than than to ignore in some cases if you're open to willing. You know, if I call you a racist on Twitter because your story is so bad, hopefully you've learned something from it and you've understood what you've done wrong. And the next time you write that story or ask for that story, you're going to do it differently. Um, so I, I think that we're not going to, we can't be timid about this, right? We're not going to change the landscape. We're not going to erode racism and stereotypes if we're afraid to do it. We've got to, we've got to talk. We've got to have discussions. We've got to have debate. We've got to feel uncomfortable. So I think what I'd say to, to journalists out there is, is there are so many stories that aren't getting reported and journalists like the, I still, I get like emails from journalists or people like every couple of weeks about Attawabaskat and wanting to go there. And I'm like, no one has done a story on Pekanjikum lately. Like Pewanik is a phenomenal, it's north of Attawapiskat, fantastically interesting community. Uh, so different from Attawapiskat. You know, people say the word like functional. I hate that kind of term, but it's, I, th- I think like, why is this place so different? Why do people hunt and fish more? Why are, is there no arson? Why are the youth coming back from university and, and building? Bi- There's so much that's interesting about that place. And it's beautiful, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women. You know, why are the stories clicking like the, the clicks going down? Are, are you reporting the same story? Are you doing a different perspective? Go a little bit deeper, I guess, is what I would say to journalists. And don't always go to Attawapiskat. And, and what I find, what gives me what I 
I'd love to hear like Rosie, who's in my film, she has done so much work and she's like, I'm so sick of like taking people around and helping them do their stories. Like I want to do my story. I'm like, yes, please. That's amazing. Like do your story. Uh-huh. So many people I talk to have no idea that there was a De Beers diamond. There is a De Beers diamond mine on Attawapiskat's territory. I did like, not know that until like, I saw your documentary. How is that possible? How how are journalists saying Attawapiskat's not a viable community if they have the richest diamond deposit in the Western world. That was such a ridiculous conclusion to make. Like, Attawapiskat should be one of the richest communities in Canada because of the resource wealth. Why is that? So there was just, like, not that extra level of, like, questioning and critical thinking. And I think also what's difficult about a lot of Indigenous stories is that the facts aren't always there. That was something I learned. And if the facts are there, like numbers and stats... um, it's it's really hard to report on that story. It's like the absence of data and a lot of times like there's high aut- autism rates in Attawapiskat, but the health authority doesn't have the resources to track those numbers. Uh-huh. You know, like where Teresa Spence wanted them to do forensic auditing because they like they don't have professional uh, like doing accounting for a band council. I don't even know how that would be so hard, but there's like. Anyway, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but no, it's a fascinating one because I I, I just want to break out of like certain kinds of like you know pre-written news stories. You know, like so you want to go and you do like I'm sorry to say it, like you want to go do poverty porn and take photographs of people who don't have uh, proper drinking water or you know some some of the things like the black mold. Like okay, so Ottawa-Piscata, that's the go-to. It's on the Rolodex. There's a hundred other communities that might be in just as terrible situations, but that's the one we know. So people go there and they go on the tour. And meanwhile, there's a community that you're saying is, is further north that is that doesn't face those problems. It, it- to to a less extreme extent, right? Or and, and and I'm not from either places, and I have you know this place was built properly. It's better landscape. They didn't have an oil spill on the ground for 30 years. Like there's all these differences. Every community is different. But what is it, right? So yeah. so you know I I I could kind of hear the hackneyed story of like, well let's let's have a good story. Yeah. Where where's there a good community? Screw that. I actually like you've piqued my curiosity. Right. Which is what really fuels a good story. Mm-hmm. I want to know. I want I want to know, you know, from a data driven standpoint, what the differences are in these communities from a cultural standpoint. I like now I'm but interested. That's what's hard. There's no data a lot of the time. Right. I mean, but, yeah. you know, but, but now I'm interested in a story. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Now I, I would li- I would like to actually hear that. And, and, and my ear is sort of tuned differently now. Yeah. And I think what's amazing, what Journalists for Human Rights is doing is uh, they're training people in communities to be kind of like the media liaison to be that person that does an interview or like brings you to another person because that's what I've and I've done I've I was in Thunder Bay and there's a community advocacy program that's often what's a challenge for journalists is going to a community and not having a touch point or the band council doesn't have any sort of policy or protocol about when media comes in so just even training local journalists who can take photos who can interact with news bureaus so that that's another problem. It's so expensive to fly up to. You can't go do a story and paying your tongue if you're based in Toronto. Like that's insanely expensive. Yeah, but, but if you have a local journalist who can do like send you photos, can document, can be a source, can interview people locally in their own language. Yeah. Um, so there's. It's never been more technologically possible. So. Yeah. Well, it's why this. It's why the TRC recommended that the CBC be fully funded. It wasn't because, oh, we like the CBC's coverage. It was because we want local, northern, remote coverage, right? That's been, that CBC's had to cut over the past uh, 10 years. So those, I, I think that what Vicky is saying is absolutely right. I mean, there's so many stories that Canadians have no idea about because they're in the quote-unquote hinterland. You know, maybe Iqaluit has something going on, maybe Thunder Bay, but really 
between Thunder Bay and Akawa Week, that's it. Nothing. Can anyone here think of a better purpose for CBC's refunding than than to have a representative in each community who is equipped to tell stories in that community? I mean, I I, I, I almost feel like that should be kind of woven into their mandate. A hundred percent it should be. And I thought it was originally. Yeah, I think there's one person in Iqaluit, but there's there was Inuit Broadcasting Council that was doing a lot of really amazing content in Inuktitut in indigenous other indigenous languages and it folded. So a lot of those like well, it does a little bit, but it's not what it used to be. But they've been scaling back C B C North and C B C Aboriginal has been scaling back yeah. uh, with very little public outcry or, or debate. Yeah, and it's it, it built up so many important film like Inuit Broadcasting Council, like Zacharias Canuck, like a lot of people. That's that's where you get your skills, like basic camera skills. You uh-huh. get training. People like Journalists for Humans Human Rights. Those organizations are, have been working along the coast in Northern Ontario, developing citizen journalists, and those people are so important for telling stories about their communities. But it takes like an incredible effort. Uh, to do that kind of program, to have someone work locally so people don't have to come down south. They can report from their communities. Like it takes a lot of uh, commitment. You can't be flying in for two weeks and doing like, here's how you hold a camera. Here's the mic. Like those programs don't work. And often communities don't have a place to hold that kind of equipment. You need like buildings and sometimes those aren't there but um if there are people on the ground that are trained like that is so important and also another aspect to media training it's been incredibly important for youth engagement there's uh film workshops for suicide prevention um there's so many ways that youth um that media training also uh meets other objectives health objectives, um, education objectives, and, and kids love doing it. Yeah, it, yeah. B- beyond the impact of telling your story, yeah. the, the simple act of telling your story is uh, nourishes people. And uh, I, mean, I, 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 I mean, that, that makes a certain horse sense to me mm-hmm. that, I, that actually might make a difference in somebody's life. Um, but also journalists that fly in and fly out, they have zero bearing, zero orientation. They don't know, they don't know how to interpret what they're saying, what they're seeing, what they're hearing. Uh, and then that, of course... Uh, results in skewed coverage. Um, I could probably, you know, talk about the media's deference to authority when it comes to Indigenous issues. In any other area of, of, you know, I don't want to call Indigenous peoples a policy area, but in any other area, media, you know, they they actually devote resources to digging deep and questioning ministers on on uh, on issues. But you know, if the RCMP or the Minister of Indian Affairs or the Prime Minister says something about Native issues, the media just, they they don't really second guess it. Uh, uh, Or they go to, you know, the official perspectives that oftentimes just agree with that uh, basic uh, untruths. Um, So being more critical of institutions is something that media really needs to work on when it comes to covering Indigenous issues. Like when the RCMP came out with their study on missing and murdered Indigenous women and He's like, nope, it's all family violence. We have a 95% solve rate. Nothing to see here. Media was like, well, let's close the file. <laughs> Without any due diligence or study or uh, critical examination. And then that, unfortunately, set the tone for the next six months. It was like, well, we don't need to investigate this. We're going to a community. I, th- I don't think there's the 
the enough appreciation for how burned, like just using the example of Attawabascat, how burned that community has been by the media and the hesitance to speak to journalists. Just like they're like, what? What is doing another interview going to do? Like they've been so reported and there's still so much work to be done. Like right now is really a time where, where work is happening in the community. And wh- why why should I speak to another journalist? Like such... Um, uh, skepticism and also for good reason. Like they have not always been well represented by the media. And well, I what's think what's the upshot that, that you can't ask for more media attention than Ottawa? No, I received. think they, so. What what's different? Is it different there now than it was before? So well, let me. That wasn't really where I was going. But people react more coldly to journalists. They're like, I don't want to talk to you. And I've seen that in in journal, like in stories about Ottawa. How frustrating it can be to go in and find someone to talk to, and just like the tone in the journalist's voice, the frustration. That was coming out. It was I don't know more during Chief Spence's hunger strike. She wasn't really talking to any media, and you could just hear how irritated they were with her. And it was like it was like this personal affront. But there isn't really. And and then most recently during the housing crisis, there was a journalist that wanted to do something on De Beers. I'm like, now is not a good time. Like people, there's like 40 journalists in Ottawa's right now. Like. The focus is on the suicide crisis. Like that story is not newsworthy right now. Like I can't help you. I don't want to introduce you to people who might talk about that. She went ahead with it anyway. And they were so angry, Mm -hmm. you know, like just like there's a sensitivity to doing stories in the north, especially with communities that have been like badly reported on in the past. Well, if I was in a teeny community where there was like an outbreak of youth suicide and the next morning there was just a camera in front of every house in everyone's face saying, Mm -hmm. how do you feel? Yeah. It's no wonder that journalists get kicked out of communities, you know, like out of Wapis. It's like, we know we don't want you here. Get lost because you're, you're, you're out there portraying us in this completely inaccurate light and insensitive light. I mean, talk about a sense of entitlement, right? I mean, that anger that journalists feel when they can't get an interview or a good interview, nobody wants to talk to them. That That's manifest in the story, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it is entitlement. It's like, oh, no one reports on Indigenous stories. And I'm here and no <laughs> one wants to talk to me. Yeah. Like, it, it comes across in the story. That more of that messiah complex. You know? Yeah. Well, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground today, guys. Uh, thank you again. Uh, really great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash Canada Land. Quick note to Canada Land's patrons. As you know, you get an email every time we post a new podcast. That's how Patreon is set up. But I think it's too much email. We're putting out four podcasts a week now. That is like an email almost every weekday. It's too much email from us. You know how podcasts work. All of our podcasts come out when they're supposed to come out every week. So we're just not going to do that anymore. We're only going to send you email through Patreon when we really need to, not for every episode. So sorry about that. And please do not be alarmed now that those emails have stopped. We are still making podcasts on our regular schedule. Speaking of which, Commons will be out tomorrow on Tuesday. On Wednesday, there is a new episode of The Imposter, and Shortcuts will be out on Thursday. Friday, of course, is our newsletter, Not Sorry. Subscribe now. I make this show with Katie Jensen. We syndicate Canada Land for free to community and campus radio stations across this country. Russell Gregg handles that. If you like what we do, please support us.
hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.